VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, April the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 2735211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, let's head down to Vegas. At the Men's World Curling Championships, Guju now 7-1. and one. Lost to Sweden yesterday, but rebounded to beat Finland last night. You know, it was interestingly, the three-time defending champion, Nicholas Eden from Sweden, he got out of the gates one and two. Don't look now. He's six and three. So he's right back where we all thought he would be. But Guju and the boys look still pretty good, and they're the only team that has one loss. So they're in good shape as they head into today's action where they play the United States. All right, and if you thought it was a big deal that Greg Roberts and his team at Mary Brown's bought the naming rights for mile, for mile one to be now the Mary Brown Center, pretty cool. They struck a five-year deal with the Toronto Blue Jays to sell Mary Brown's in the burn. So that's pretty good stuff. That company is growing leaps and bounds. Talk about leaps and bounds. 21 years ago today, NASA launched the 2001 Odyssey probe to Mars, of course named after Stanley Kubrick's classic sci-fi film, using spectrometers and a thermal imager to detect evidence of past or present water and ice. The mission was a success, which elapsed 32 months after it arrived at the Red Planet that continued for 17 years and 7 months of transmitting the data back to, the, uh, back to Earth. It is the second oldest-serving spacecraft in the solar system, 2001, the... 2001 Odyssey was launched. And a couple other interesting ones. Prohibition doesn't work, right? Never has, never will. Prohibition against drinking beer was ended in the United States and returned to the malty beverage celebrated today, known as Brew Year's Day, 1933. Also an organization that's certainly been in the news a lot in the last few years, the World Health Organization was established today in history in 1948 by the United Nations, of course. They were hugely successful in obliterating killer diseases like smallpox. There's 150 offices in 90, 194 member states. Uh, so measles, malaria, guinea worm eliminated from any country. So 1948, the WHO. And how about this for a juxtaposition? Today in 1985, then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev declared a moratorium on the deployment of middle-range missiles in Europe, and now we see what's happening in Europe with the devastation brought to bear by Russian missiles in the country of Ukraine, if you want to tackle it. Let's do it. Okay, so let's not bury the lead any further. So the federal government, through the Department of Environment and Minister Gibo, released the Beta Nord Project from the Environmental Assessment. It's being called an approval. Uh, climate critics will scoff at this decision. Those who are all in on oil, of course, are euphoric today, given this, this move made by the minister. You have to imagine that there was an awful lot of pressure on Minister Gibo because his track record, historical uh, context when it pertains to fossil fuels and climate change, this is not his decision alone. It just can't be. So whether it be because of the greenhouse emissions report last week and the need for low-carbon intensity oil and the immediate increase in oil production, first oil scheduled maybe 2028 if things go to plan for Equinor, so this being welcomed in some corners and widely criticized in others, and whatever your perspective is, bring it forward. 
What's next steps? Next steps would include Equinor making a final business model decision on whether or not to proceed. Now, it's very likely they'll do exactly that, given the fact that they're floating over a rig to drill two additional holes out in the Flemish Pass. Their break-even number is $35 a barrel, so it looks like that will be a no-brainer. But then comes a couple of the big issues that pertains to the province, and that will be, number one, how much work actually gets done here? Because it's one thing to have the jobs created for the offshore production and some of the jobs associated with the, uh, the exploration that continues, but onshore work in preparing the FPSO or FPSOs for work out on the Beta Nord project, that will be the big part that the province is going to have to get right. We haven't done a great job in years past. Remember, even back to Hebron, the company simply paid us, uh, what was $100 million, so they floated all the work elsewhere, South Korea. So that's one. Secondly, the argument being made by some is that the world is changing so quickly that where will the market be for the entire lifespan of the project? Oil is not going away today or tomorrow or in 10 or 20 years, but things are changing. So that begs the question, what does the province do with its continued want to have a 10% equity stake? It really seems to me that those days are, are gone. If we're going to talk about the company making a bet on future markets, then let's not be betters on this front as well. You know, let's just hopefully stick with a royalty and a super royalty and kind of leave the equity business behind. You know, to put money on the barrel head today to have a very minimal interest and very little to no say because the operator really does bring the hammer to bear at the all decisions to be made. So what do we do there? So if we're talking about betting on the future, let's not. Let's play it safe on this one. Let's just let them proceed if that's what Equinor chooses to do with their other partners and see what becomes of it. Also, when you look at oil and gas assets, it was part of the Premier's Economic Recovery Team report, the Moya Green report, about looking at what those assets might mean for sale. Now, I don't know what the appetite is out there for what our current holdings would be offshore in the form of equity stakes, but you know that's part of it. And it's also part of what's being discussed in the Rothschild report if we ever were so lucky to get a look at the money that we spent on the report and have a little look under the, cover, the covers or under the hood of that particular issue. So there's still some big questions to be asked. Okay, whatever you think about Peter Nord, let's talk about it today. And not to be conspiratorial, but it just feels like there's another shoe to drop here somewhere. Whether it be with all the rebrands at NOIA to be Energy NL and the CNLOPB to now be the Energy Board, you wonder what else might be involved here. Now, I heard Minister Andrew Parsons on with Jerry Lynn Mackey earlier on the VOC Morning Show talking about it was a great day for the Premier and the work that he'd done behind the scenes to secure this decision. And this decision must have been made a while ago. You know, the timing's no coincidence. A bit of good news before the budgets today, which for some might be the foreshadowing of some potentially not so great news today. And well, that remains to be seen. You know, and that's where access to information and understanding exactly what's going on is important. So are there some sort of deals that have been made regarding any future potential production off our shores? I don't know. But when you see all the rebranding and the amendments made to build C, uh, Bill C-61 to lift the 2007 ban on wind production, something's going on. You know, transition is, requires an awful lot of capital, requires some time, requires some advent in technology and innovation. And yes, we have opportunities. We certainly have plenty of wind blowing the head office all the time. But the questions with the wind opportunities and hydrogen or what have you, you know, wind farms are everywhere. 
but they're also in close proximity to the markets that they'll serve. So what exactly is the plan here? I know it's not the government through Nalcor getting involved in building a wind farm, at least not until now. There's no comments on that front. So whether it be Fortis waiting in the wings or Beothic Energy waiting in the wings to reinvigorate their plan for offshore wind. But the cost of transmission to get to a market that is not the province is staggering. So I just kind of wonder what exactly is going on behind the scenes that has seen all of these fast and furious changes and rebrands and amendments to legislation. I don't know if you want to offer your thoughts on it. But I, I just got that feeling that there's something else that they're not telling us. And it'll be important to know because being kept in the loop is a pretty big deal. And also, this really does take one of the most important and most vocal and rehashed arrows out of the quiver of opposition parties that say, you know, well, they're all just going to kill off the oil fields and they're never going to produce any more oil. And so opposition parties will scramble today to see how to handle this. Now, maybe in this province, the Tories might say, well, this is a good thing because they've been pushing for this. The NDP, through their... House Leader Mr. Din says that they didn't want this to happen, given the climate catastrophe that is very real, and the conversation has to be had. And yes, low-carbon-intensity oil is going to be probably the best option versus the 77 kilograms per barrel produced in the oil sands of Alberta, or the 17.9 kilograms of oil, that's the international average, even though we're much, much less than that anyway. Uh, off our shores, just shy of 15 kilograms per barrel. But of course, that's only 15% of the life cycle. So we kind of lose sight of that a little bit. You know, it's not just through extraction. It's the intensity right through the end result, whether it be petroleum projects, project, products pardon me, that are used for lubrications or the phone I have in my hand or so many other things that we touch every single day. They're right in front of us everywhere I look in this, in this room. There's a contribution of petroleum products. So it is cleaner, but there's no such thing as clean. So let's talk about it because... It's a complicated matter, to say the very least, but I would really like to know, and especially for Minister Parsons, if you're listening or someone in your office is listening on your behalf this morning as they get ready to deliver the budget, what led to this opportunities that we think we can seize as a province with wind? Because the question will be, where are they going to sell it? We have been slaved to the Muskrat Falls project. We're the only customer for it, other than our partners on the other end of the maritime link and the power we owe them. And power is already flowing through the province of Nova Scotia. And also the impact of the potential for, let's just say, one big large-scale industrial operation on the island or in Labrador that would avail of wind energy and to power up their own project, whether it be a mine or whatever the case may be. The more customers we take out especially when we're talking about large-scale industrial customers, the more we take out of the chain, it just means the, the consequences for the ratepayer, the little guy, me and you, we're going to end up paying more for the power. It's a fixed cost. Customers take it out means we still have to pay more. So I'd like to know a little bit more about the rationale behind all of this focus, renewed focus, on wind and hydrogen or solar or tidal power, whatever the case may be. Sure, there might be opportunities, but... Maybe not. And that's where it comes down to things like access to information. I saw Russell Wangorski chime in on a social media thread yesterday talking about access to information. And he was told, he says, by a politician who had served in the cabinet, he didn't say under what government or who the person was, that they walked into the cabinet room one day and they threw a document on the table and says, well, now this is a cabinet document and we'd be able to protect it from the eyes of the peering public. Uh, no reason not to believe Mr. Wangorski. 
which is why some of the, the Supreme Court decision last week about when the province invokes uh, solicitor client privilege that the Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey is unable to overstep that and still get the documentation. It's a, it's a reach way, way, way too far. So not to say that any of the documents that are currently in play or whether or not this was handshakes and conversations and no documents, no briefing documents, but still, that's not good enough. It wasn't so long ago that when the Tories brought forward Bill 29, the Liberals, then opposition, were absolutely apoplectic, and rightfully so, because it was shielding information from us frivolous and vexation wanna seers from getting a look at these things. Information is power, and the ability for us to hold government to account means we have to know what they're doing. And so this decision hopefully will be make its way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, just like a, an Alberta case did, to make sure that we're on the right track. What do you think? We can talk about it. All right, uh, a couple of things on the numbers. Regarding COVID, just because the province updates its hub Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and yesterday that happened. There's now 47 people in the hospital. That's up four. There was four additional deaths, bringing the total to 122. Nine people are in the ICU. We were told by Dr. Fitzgerald, Dr. Hagee, and others that our capacity in the hospitals was between 40 and 60. So we're creeping towards the upper threshold. We have no earthly idea how many cases are out there, but we offer our condolences to those who passed, and we wish a speedy recovery to those who are in the hospital. There was also, when we had Dr. Fitzgerald on this program just yesterday, talking about new guidance coming from NACI, uh, regarding the fourth dose for those over 80 and others immunocompromised and what have you. So that might be coming. And we did ask her about adverse effects, side effects, and there's couldn't get much in the way of information on that question, but we'll continue to probe because it'd be nice to know exactly what's happening on that front in the province as well. And it is budget day. Going to have to free up some brain space for today because the province and the federal government both bring down their budget. Two o'clock here in the House of Assembly, I think it's 5 or 5.30 for the federal government and Minister of Freeland. For the province, you know, there's always massive concerns. Of course there are, healthcare and otherwise. But the overwhelming issue that I hear from our listeners, callers, emailers, and tweeters is associated with the cost of living. Now, a little reprieve at the pump and other fuels yesterday, but minimal. It's always a concern. I mean, how much we're paying for the necessities of life is always, every single year, a concern of voters, taxpayers right across the country. But it's never been such a concern that it is today. The prices are out of control. And again, I know I'm not going to have any satisfaction here, but for the Public Utilities Board, maybe to be obliged by the provincial government to start offering us a bit more than just an update via news release. It's got to start justifying what's going on with these prices. But that's where people are going to be looking at the budget today. I have no earthly idea if there's going to be cuts or whopping big new spendings. I know they're going to be quite buoyed because of the announcement of Bailey Nord yesterday. But some attention on that front. If it's not in the budget today, there's going to be a lot of frustrated Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So it's never been a bigger issue than it is today. Cost of living, and I know the province can't do much with inflationary pressures, but that's where people will look. And as mentioned, the federal budget comes down later this afternoon. It's the second budget for Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland. Her first one, there was a risk of doing too little, and for her second one, there was a risk of doing too much. We know some of the big deals because of the supply confidence deal, the arrangement between the Liberals and the NDP, maybe setting the framework for dental care and pharma care, affordable housing, seniors' supports, and what have you. So there's going to be an awful lot to consider for those of us in the media, and yes, for the voters and the political watchers right across the country.
you can bet your bottom dollar you're going to hear a lot of reference to the the measure of debt net debt to gdp now it's widely used as the key measure of how the governments will manage debt and where we stand and our ability to service and you know full well that you're going to hear a lot of that today because in reality in g7 g20 we're in good stead but that doesn't mean that people across the country are comfortable with the whopping big amount of debt that has been accumulated over the last couple of years but you're going to hear that reference a lot today i would imagine uh, very quickly before we get to the break Sad news yesterday for us here at VOCN and also for the community at large. Bill Callahan, former member of the Joey Smallwood Cabinet, went on to a storied career in journalism, former managing editor at The Telegram. Mr. Callahan passed away unexpectedly yesterday. I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Callahan on this program a couple of times, met him a couple of times. Can't say that I knew the man necessarily, but very familiar with his work. His son, Brian, works with us here at VOCM News. So we were quite saddened and shocked to hear of his passing yesterday. So we'd like to offer our deepest condolences to the family, and especially Brian, my friend. We're sorry for your loss, Brian, and we wish you well in the days, weeks, and months to come as you deal with the grief associated with losing your dad. Really sorry to hear that. We were, uh, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Uh, when we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. But first, let's get a tune on the go. This one was eventually covered by Rod Stewart. But the original in 1962, Sam Cooke remained at the top of the R&B chart for the third week with Twisting the Night Away. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, James. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, Patty, I want to... Before I talk about shopping locally, I want to say my con- condolences to the Callahan family. Bill was our member in, in the government for, for a lot of time, and we had the opportunity to meet him. Just a fine gentleman. Yeah, really sad news, and apparently it was unexpected. So we were all knocked off our feet a little bit here at the shop, so our condolences uh, along with yours, absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, in, now, but talking about shopping, shopping locally. If you're in Stephenville and you go into this, uh, you're, you're at the mall, right? So you're going for, for a dozen eggs, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to buy small eggs, you've got to buy Newfoundland eggs. If you want to buy medium-sized eggs, you've got to buy eggs produced in Newfoundland. If you want to buy large eggs, you've got to buy eggs produced in Newfoundland. If you want to buy extra-large eggs, you've got to buy, buy eggs that's produced in Newfoundland, produced and by, by Newfoundlanders, right? So, oh, okay. Okay, so you go down the street for... Uh, but a block down the street, and there's a locally owned and operated store there, right? Now, if you want to buy a, a small eggs there, you've got to buy eggs from Nova Scotia. You can't buy a Newfoundland egg there. If you want to buy any other size egg there, you've got to buy eggs produced in Nova Scotia. Okay, so the point you're making is what, James? It's that people should buy locally. And these people, store people... They can they you know they want you to buy local, but they won't buy local themselves, right? They gotta buy it from Nova Scotia. Yeah, I don't know what shops are, what kind of contracts they have in place, or whether they're part of a network or owned and operated, right? Okay. So, okay. So then you come back out of there and you go back down to Queen Street and go down there, and there's another big grocery store down there. All you 
can buy is you can't buy a Newfoundland egg there. All you can buy is eggs that's packed for Loblaws. Now, don't say where they're they're grown or produced, but they're just packed for Loblaws, right? Yeah, some of those some of those uh, grocery stores or different chains they would have, you know, bulk purchasing power with relationships with other grocery stores, and so consequently they'll all have the same products on their shelves, whether they'd be produced here or elsewhere. The concept of buying and shopping local is. You know, I always get some pushback when we talk about this. You know, sometimes people don't consider the opportunity or the price point or the, uh, the the array of different products that won't be available and or customer service. Nothing quite like reaching out to be able to speak to someone who's from your community, living and working in your community. You know, and then people say, well, boy, you know, there's locals working out of Costco. Yeah, of course there are. But we also know that a lot of those profits absolutely flow out of the province. And if you chipped away minor percentages from the big box just stores, just including me, just Costco, let me tell you this. Just let me tell you this, Pat. You can't go wrong by, by buying Newfoundland. If you're a Newfoundlander and you're buying a Newfoundland egg, I don't care what the, 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 the conditions are of buying from somebody else. You're obligated, or at least you think you should buy from Newfoundland eggs. That you know, you can make excuses for them, but they won't buy one lousy thing off of us. But we want, they want us to buy their products, right? If they want us to buy their drugs, they buy. We, we they'll sell us their drugs, but they won't buy one lousy egg off of us, right? Okay, are you in the egg business or something? That's fair, right? Okay, yeah. People should consider how they spend their money. I think there's better local options than we give the place credit for. And, you know, even yeah. if you... But, you know, if they, if they buy a Newfoundland egg, that means the money stays in Newfoundland. It means that a Newfoundland uh, farmer got a chance to, to have a couple of, of more employees, probably. So, you know, then at least we're, we're doing something for ourselves instead of, you know, sending our money out to... to to Toronto or or Nova Scotia. Now I got nothing against Nova Scotia, or or Toronto as far as that goes. But I think charity begins at home, right? So we got an egg marketing board here in Newfoundland. I don't know what they're marketing, but we don't hear too much from them. But I'd like to see some Newfoundland eggs on the market. At, at especially at Newfoundland stores. Appreciate the times, morning, James. Shopping local is always a good idea. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, and it's a funny thing, you know. We do indeed rely on the price points and the relieve some of the pressure when you go to some of the big bo- bigger box stores and you buy bulk, or the WalMarts of the world, or the Costco's of the world. But considering where things are made is important. You know, we'll have so many people that were very quick to condemn China, for instance, uh, and rightfully so, but still happy enough to fill up their cart with stuff from China. So I, I think there's a bit of deeper thought required when we go to spend our money. You may indeed spend slightly more for something made here or manufactured somewhere else in the country. It might be a better quality, last longer, and so consequently your, your dollar will be stretched further. But I guess you do what you want with your own money. But when it's spent here locally and recirculated in the community, that's a good thing. Okay, let's see here. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get it rolling. 
You hear me talk about this clinic every so often. It's the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. They do important work for individuals to assess your drug regime, the numbers of uh, prescriptions you're taking, and a lot of other advice that can come from the team, whether it be under the leadership of Dr. Debbie Kelly, and a lady that I've had on the program a couple of times in the past. One of the clinic pharmacists over there is Dr. Kathy Balsam. She joins us right after the break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to one of the pharmacists at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. That's Dr. Kathy Balsam. Good morning, Dr. Balsam. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. And I want to say thank you because a lot of my patients lately have been patients that heard about us on your program. So thank you. Yeah, hopefully that's helpful. No, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so there's been a lot of change with how we do business, including at your clinic. I don't know if there was a lot of face-to-face interaction. What's, What's the update? Yeah, so I guess I wanted to let you know uh, that we are now seeing patients back in person. We certainly still have the virtual and phone option for those that uh, may not be on this side of the overpass. But uh, anyone that might be feeling, you know, disconnected and have questions about their medications and kind of, you know, sick of the virtual <laughs> or phone call uh, clinic appointments, we are certainly uh, now opening our doors to seeing people in person. So we wanted to give you that update. For those who don't know, what exactly are the services you, that you offer at the clinic? Yeah, so our clinic is the Medication Therapy Services Clinic, or MTS Clinic for short. So we are at the School of Pharmacy, so we have a lot of student learners, but of of course there's uh, pharmacists like myself and my colleague Jeremy. So we actually sit down with our patients for an hour uh, and go down through all of your medications, your medical history. We can help kind of navigate any issues that you're having with your medications, maybe either side effects or drug interactions, or maybe just answer questions, you know, what are all these medications for? Um, one of the big things that we do is really promote deprescribing, which is looking at whether or not a medication is still required. We know uh, our seniors take a lot of medications, and oftentimes they're absolutely required, but oftentimes they're actually not. Um, So we're here to kind of look at each medication and determine whether or not that's needed for our patients. There's a rule of thumb that I remember you told me that when you have as many as five pharmaceuticals that have been prescribed to you, it's absolutely time to turn to your team to ensure that the interactions, potential drug-to-drug interactions might not be complicating your own health issues, whether or not you have symptoms of when you don't no longer need a drug. Is five the number? Yeah, I think it, I mean, the number can certainly vary. It can be one if it's the wrong medication for you, <laughs> you know, if, it, if there is a better option out there. So we can determine that. But five is a good, a good um, kind of point to look at medications because we know that, you know, 66% of seniors in Canada are taking five or more medications. Uh, 25% are actually taking 10 or more medications. So it's quite a lot of medications, and that does increase as you age. Those stats are Canadian, and we actually know that Newfoundlanders take more medications than the national average. So I think it's never a bad idea to have your medications reviewed by a pharmacist, and we're here at no cost to our patients. You know, certainly any time that you're on, and even two medications can interact, right? And we know that medications are constantly being invented and guidelines are changing and there's always new medications and options available. So we're out to make sure that, you know, each person is taking the right number of medications for them, (laughs) regardless of what that number is. You say as little as one prescription might need to be reviewed. You know, when you go see the doctor and he or she writes your prescription, you figure you're getting the appropriate drug for your ailments and your symptoms. How does one know whether or not it's 
working the way it's intended to work because, you know, we have a lot of faith in the white coat. The doctor wrote me the, the prescription. This must be the right one. What do you say to folks who maybe now are looking at the pill bottle saying, well, I'm not so sure this is the right one for me? I guess, you know, certainly things have changed over the years, too. So medications that we know were, or we thought, you know, 20, 30 years ago were really effective and, and safe have now maybe come out to be determined that they're not, that that's not the case. And there could be other new medications available. So we always say, you know, whether it be that scenario where, you know, it was the best medication at that time, but now there are new ones, um, or perhaps, you know, as you got other medications added on, there's a drug interaction there that makes that not be the right choice. Um, now we do kind of, we do certainly work along with prescribers. So anything that we see that could be adjusted, we provide that recommendation back to the prescriber and work as a team to kind of collaborate for the best interests of the patient. But I think right now, a lot of people feel guilty, you know, taking up their prescriber's time because it does take so long to get an appointment. And as you know, with the family doctor shortage, there's a lot of times where people actually don't even have a family doctor. So we're kind of there to help answer any medication questions that anybody may have. Uh, whether or not you have a prescriber or not. And if you have a prescriber, we'll work with them to adjust the medications as necessary. But if you don't, we can certainly kind of help to bridge that gap and and hopefully get you the care you need. I don't want to put you on the spot, but we've had lots of conversations about, you know, primary care teams, collaborative teams, maximizing the scope of practice. There's so much that pharmacists can do. I always go back to the Bell Island pharmacist, Carol O'Keefe, saying that she's got examples of patients where it takes three visits to the specialist, three visits to the GP before they get an adjustment to their drugs that she could have done in 10 minutes in the shop. What do we need to know about maximizing scope of practice for pharmacists to make the system more efficient? Yeah, no, I think there's quite a lot of evidence out there on different things that pharmacists could be involved in that we're currently not. And I do recognize that, you know, policy changes take time, but I think it's there, there's dire need out there, you know, with the family doctor shortage, like, you know, the uh, Kara O'Keefe, a great pharmacist has said, you know, we are definitely capable of a lot more. So I hope that we can kind of spread that word a little bit more and, and encourage people to really promote uh, the role of the pharmacist and, and, you know, talk about any good experiences that you have with a pharmacist and, you know, try to see what the pharmacist in your neighborhood could do for you that maybe you weren't aware of because we can prescribe for minor ailments now. We can dose adjust uh, certain medications. We can adapt medications in, in certain scenarios. So, you know, we're certainly working on it. And us here at the clinic, we're evaluating everything that we do to hopefully really provide some of that local context for that policy change. Give us some contact info for folks who now have their interest peaked. Yeah, no, so you can reach us for an appointment. You can actually refer yourself if you just want to come in and have a chat. Our phone number is 864-2274. So certainly give us a call, and we can see you within a couple weeks usually. If you have any other questions, you're not quite sure if this kind of fits, you can certainly email us at mtsclinic.ca, or sorry, mtsclinic at mun.ca, or go to our website, mtsclinic.ca. I've got someone posing a very specific question here, and I'll ask it on their behalf. Uh, it's yeah. a type 2 diabetes medication called metformin. Yes, metformin. Wondering if it's still effective or safe. There's some data out there that this person says indicates maybe not. What do you know? So obviously we certainly would like to meet with every patient individually to look at their uh, particular scenario, but I will say metformin has been and has been for a long time the kind of gold standard first medication that you would start for diabetes. Certainly still effective in a lot of people. There are often uh, there are also new medications that we now recommend along with metformin, but perhaps metformin may not be the best option for you depending on other things. So I don't want to give personalized medication advice, but yeah. uh, certainly someone that we'd love to talk to. Good to have you on the show this morning, Dr. Balsam, thank you very much for your time. Keep up the good work. 
Awesome. Thanks so much, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Kathy Balsam from the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Mons School of Pharmacy. Let's go to line one. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Patty, I want to pass my condolences along to Mr. Bill Callahan's family. They're really good friends of mine. And uh, Mrs. Callahan, I'm thinking of you today. I'm thinking of my good friend Sean and, and Brian. And uh, I just uh, hope that they can be strong to get through this. Mr. Callahan was a wonderful man. Got to know him really well. Of course, he was uh, in politics, MHA minister for the Liberal Party here in the province and uh, the Daily News. You know, he was big in the starting of the Daily News. And very, very, very nice man and uh, very sorry to hear of his passing. So I want to share my condolences to uh, to Mrs. Callahan, Sean, and Brian, and the family. And I wish they can be strong and get through this today and, and, and the days ahead. It's never easy. Uh, I've been through it, having lost my father. And, uh, yeah, we were all staggered a little bit here yesterday to hear the news. Apparently, Brian got the call while he was working at the House of Assembly. So I can only imagine... The wallop that he took and the entire family and the friends Mr. Callahan took yesterday, and we offer our condolences as well. It's a, it's, it's a sad time. Yes, it is. I lost my son there in December, 31 years old, and it's, it's, it's a disaster. But, uh, yeah, um, uh, yes, uh, Brian is a reporter with you guys, and uh, I must say I, I listen to VOCM religiously, and, and Brian is doing a wonderful job. He's an excellent reporter, and uh, I like listening to him, actually. I think he does top-quality work. Yeah. Well, have a good day, Patty, and uh, thanks for taking my call again, and my condolences to to uh, to the Callahan family. I, I, my thoughts are with them today. I appreciate this. Thank you, Gene. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Eugene, I meant to say. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, to say the very, very least. But I am curious to uh, hear from you about what you anticipate or any of your concerns going into the, today's budget, because we know that the provincial government is absolutely strapped. No doubt about it. Borrowing has been massive. The deficits have been whopping huge numbers year over year for the last number of years. So the whole concept of giving us a break and some cost of living related matters, I mean, I I feel the pinch, and I'm sure all of you would feel the exact same thing. But I guess it's, you know, worth saying that every time they do away with some revenue stream, whether it be uh, tax on home heating fuels or a break at the pump and reducing the provincial tax applied to a liter of gasoline, they'll get it back somewhere else or they simply have to borrow more. But that doesn't mean that the people in the province who are absolutely wary of going to the pumps or going to the grocery store or paying their telecom bill or paying their insurance premiums, we're feeling it. And today's budgets, both provincially and federally, are going to have to talk to the cost of living and inflationary pressures, especially the federal government when it comes to levers can be pulled regarding inflation. Of course, I know the bulk of that type of policy is addressed with Mr. Macklin and the uh, Bank of Canada, but there's a lot to talk about. We can do it right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament for St. John's South Mount Pearl. He's the Minister of Labor, Seamus O'Regan. Minister O'Regan, you're on the air. Patty, good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. I figured I'd come on because I thought if, if the Baylor decision had gone the other way, my name might have been mentioned, so I figured I might as well come on. It's... Uh, look, I, I'm not sure where to start on this one. You know, if you look at the background of Minister Gibo, yeah. it felt unlikely to get approval from his office. Then you read between the lines in the Greenhouse Emissions Report from last week, and it really felt, again, that Bader Nord looked like it could and would get approved. We did talk about some of the political clashing inside of your caucus. Now that the decision has been made, mm-hmm. who made this decision? 
Well, Mr. Gibo did. He did, based on you know, the advice, the technical advice that he received from the Impact Assessment Agency. Um, but you, well, I, you're right to point out there have been some significant changes that have happened lately. I mean, Noya now is Energy and Al. The Prime Minister made a point of, of singling them out, and that re ran uh, when we were at a climate conference together in, in, uh, in Vancouver. Uh, you're, you're right to point out, I mean, we look now at the CNLOPB, it's the CNLOEB. But, you know, the fact of the matter is the world has changed. Our energy markets changed. Here's the thing, and, and this is what I'm hoping is, is going to happen after last week's announcement of our emissions reduction plan. Right Now we're getting down to the numbers. Uh, the polarity that has existed um, and reflected often in the calls that you get on this show and in the news, but the polarity that has existed in uh, when we talk about energy and specifically when we talk about oil, it's got to end. Like we, we really we got to now drill down on the numbers. And there's lots of room on that spectrum. Trust me to argue and to rant and to roar. But we got to drill down on the numbers now. It's not good enough just to throw out make just transition happen. Uh, it's not good enough to just say let's end oil. Um, we have got to drill down on how exactly we do that. And how we connect the dots on a couple of other things that you've mentioned, too, on your show, one of them being labor shortages, right? And a specific labor, labor shortage in our energy markets, including here. And the other thing is affordability, consumer affordability. I don't think there's any other jurisdiction that is more attuned than ours in here in Newfoundland and Labrador, that when you build large energy projects, who pays for it? And are they capable of paying for it? We've been dealing with that for over a decade on rate mitigation. These are larger, I think, questions that not only confront Canada, but all around the world. We've got to drill down on the numbers. The emissions reduction plan forces us now to look at the numbers. And, and Baden-Or, within the context of an emissions reduction plan, shines bright. For the amount of energy that we will derive, that we will still need, oil is still needed, uh, you're talking about 0.2 megatons a year. And just to put that in perspective... Uh, IOC in Lab West is 0.8. If you look at Holyrood, 1.1. And and if you look at Combi Chance of Full Life, 1.4 megatons a year. Betanor is 0.2. I listen. I would make the argument uh, that this find, in particular, you know, that it's it's being proposed by Equinor, and it's a world leader when it comes to uh, low low emission uh, oil and seeking out further ways to hit net zero. Uh, this is an ideal project for the time. Um, you know, we are going to need oil for some time. It is important we find the lowest emission that we can. I don't know of a lower emitting producible source of oil in the world than Betanor. And we found it off our shores. So I think, I think look, it's important for three things. This decision, this Minister Gibo's decision is important for three reasons. I think it reflects the, the respect that the assets of this province and what we brought to Confederation are due. I think that it is a vote of confidence in the industry here that, you know, fought hard for this project and saw the vision of it. And I think it's a vote of confidence in the workers of this province and what we've built. I always reflect on the fact that 25 years ago I was writing speeches for Brian Tobin at Hibernia First Oil, and we didn't know what we were doing. And now, you know, I fly back, you know, back and forth to Ottawa. And, you know, last time I was sitting next to Owen, who's on his way to Mozambique, to show him how it's done. In his 30s, we've come a long way, and this reflects that. The, you know, when we talk about low carbon intensity of the oil and the mitigation that will be brought to bear by Equinor, the proponent, it's still only 15% of the life cycle. So we have to factor that in. And when we hear, so even some of your comments, so Minister uh, Gibo's comments, I wonder aloud whether or not there's more to see here than we've currently been told or has been talked about. For instance, it was... 
going to be 50-50 whether or not this got approved. It certainly felt like that when there was a 40-day delay called for by Minister Gibo, even though he wrote right back to the impact assessment report that he had in hand for months and months and months prior, although I know he's new to the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Is this, if the Liberals remain in elected office in Ottawa, is this the last project to be approved? Because it's hard to have it both ways and to strike that balance that is, I know, to be quite tricky, obviously, but is there anything like that that's part of that conversation that saw this final approval? Oh, no. Listen, uh, first of all, let's get rid of any speculation about whether it was 50-50 or anything else. I mean, I, you know, that is that is just speculation. I, so, I know how it felt to people. And let me just take that uh, opportunity to say this. You know, w- delays cause anxiety. And it, it was, uh, you know, I, I regret that. I regret the anxiety that people, workers in the industry and their families felt over this. But we've landed in a good place. I think that's important. There's no conspiracy theory here. There's no, you know, quid pro quo. There was nothing like that. Uh, it is a definitive vision for I think the energy industry in this country, and I think Newfoundland and Labrador is going to lead the way because because I think that you know by 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 signaling what they've signaled, both NOAA and the CNLO EB, uh, what they're saying is you know we got to find ways to lower our emissions and we got to find ways to increase renewables. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It does take hard work. It does take drilling down on the numbers, and that hard work begins now. When I talk to you know other parts of the country about this, I, I make the kind of uh, you know mild joke anyway that you know in Newfoundland and Labrador, we can't afford ideology. You know, we deal with the world as we see it, and and this is the world as it is. How do you lower emissions? You can't just say, you know, on the one hand, you know, oil, 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 on the other hand, oil is evil. Unfortunately, and I think you hit the nail on the head, trust me, nobody knows better than me that the middle ground is fairly lonely lonely ground. But, you know, I stake it out, uh, and this is where we need to be if we're going to move forward. Otherwise, the pendulum, both politically and economically, is going to swing too far one way and then too far the other way. We're going to be like, oil, 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 and then we're going to batten down the hatches for the sake of batting down the hatches. When, in fact, what we've got to do is find that middle ground, the hard hard work of the numbers and lowering emissions urgently wherever we can find them, building up renewables, but understanding that we've got to keep people with us in that mission. Like, this is singularly one of the biggest challenges Canada and particularly the Canadian economy and the Newfoundland Labrador economy has ever faced. But yet we take it on with, I think, far less hesitancy than other parts of the country or other parts of the world, where I think the pendulum swings too far. We are in the middle, but that's where the hard work is, right? And that's where you make sure that you don't swing too, one step forward and then two steps back. I want to just constantly, plottingly, effectively go forward in lowering emissions. So that the, is how we will build the economy here. In this there world. was no further discussion about future applications for offshore licenses to deal with the final approval for Braden North. No, did not happen. Well, we it's are, not a thing. We are no, no, no. What we are looking at is, you know, what we what we're looking at is, okay, what's what's best in class for 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 oil developments in this country? You know, what are we looking for? Uh, Baden Ore has really set the bar. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's at point two megatons per year. Uh, there's nothing else in the world that we have found that's like it. Um, so, you know, we've begun those talks of, okay, like, well, you know, where is that line for future developments? Um, because, you know, if you look out at the oil sands, you're talking about, you know, a far greater emissions profile uh, than what we have here. So what is that line? And, yeah, I think, we, you know, we need to start having those conversations. We are. We've opened up that conversation. Well, we talk about the world of transition. Of course, natural gas will be part of it. So will hydrogen. What's the mm-hmm. federal government's role here? Because we did indeed talk about the Atlantic loop and then all of a course, all of a sudden Minister Blanc said there's more due diligence to be done even though it was a federal project and all of a sudden that's gone by the wayside. What's the opportunity for the federal government to play a role in getting whether it be hydrogen or otherwise to market and is there a market for it that we've already been looking at? 
first of all, on the Atlantic Loop, I mean, you know, it might feel slower than people would like. It has not gone to the wayside at all. And I wouldn't, I would also argue that while it's a federal initiative, look, we wanted to bring all the parties together. Let's be very clear. It's provincial jurisdiction and provincial utilities. You can only go as fast as they want to go. Um, Not that there's any hesitancy, but the coordination amongst different provinces, and particularly utilities, trust me, can get, you know, a little bit, you know, tangly, I would say. I mean, it just requires a lot of negotiation. Not that I, you know, not that there's any sort of obstruction or anything like that. It just takes time, and people are impatient to see results on that front. I don't blame them. On hydrogen, uh, I think it's a massive opportunity for the province, because particularly in Europe, they are going to be looking for hydrogen. The potential is huge. Um, The fact is that, you know, in terms of the skill set that our labor force has in this province, it's not that far off, uh, you know, when we start working on hydrogen. Same with the infrastructure, and and that goes for out west, too. Uh, That's why it could be a huge opportunity for Alberta and for Saskatchewan. Hydrogen, as we do it now, you know, burning in order to create it creates uh, a lot more emissions. So we're looking at two different venues. What we used to call, and we're trying to get rid of these phrases, was what we what we used to call blue hydrogen and green hydrogen. Blue hydrogen, basically, what we what we do there is we use natural gas in order to derive it, and then the emissions are put into carbon capture. Um, we think that there's massive potential for that. And then here in this province, potentially as well, you're talking about green hydrogen, which means it's derived from hydroelectricity and other you know low or zero emitting sources of power. The potential for that is huge. The skill set that we have is here. The infrastructure is here. Um, obviously, there'll be more investment required. But the other thing here, what we have, our, our advantage, I, I never forget it, is, is our proximity to Europe. And the European market now is craving energy sources like this. They will pay a premium in order to be able to say, you know, this is a green hydrogen project. Or, you know, I prefer now, I, I don't like the colors because they generalize and they tend to polarize people themselves. This is bad. This is good. I, I prefer just to talk about the emissions profile of each. And they're looking for the lowest possible emissions profile. Has there been any amendments to the Atlantic Accord, whether it be related to Baden-Ord or any of these uh, opportunities for hydrogen or wind and all these amendments to made to Bill 61, which I know is provincial, but does it require any amendments or any changes to the Atlantic Accord? Not at all. No, I, I've, I can say, if anything, through everything that we've been through, and certainly in my tenure as MP and the various things that, you know, I've worked on on the Atlantic Accord Renewal Agreement or on rate mitigation or, or on this, uh, we have held up the Atlantic Accord. To me, it is sacrosanct. Uh, to me, it is a document that, that is about the future prosperity and the authority and jurisdiction of the province and the way that it works with the federal government. That is held up. That is sacrosanct to me. Uh, I mean, you know, why not ask you some budget questions, but I know we're not going to hear anything until Minister Freeland stands in the House of Commons today. But inside your own portfolio, record labor shortage across the country. I read a survey. uh, There were some 510, I believe it was, Canadian hiring decision makers. One in four employers have hired someone that they normally wouldn't, who's not necessarily qualified, but they're strapped for people. It's not a flip the switch and all of a sudden record labor shortages are gone. But this is a real problem for Canadian business. It is a real problem. Uh, we are really feeling it in the skilled trades area, which is going to be, you know, I think, a big challenge for me. I have been working on it steady, but um, uh, now with Betanor, I have a little more time on my hands. Uh, you know, w- w- we got to figure out how we increase the number of skilled trade workers in this province and, and in the country, and, and we got to match them up with the opportunities. That's that's the thing. If I could just, you know, talk about just transition again, and it's a phrase I hate, and 
Jonathan Wilkinson and I, you know, came up with a new phrase, sustainable jobs. But anyway, when you say just transition, people know what you're talking about. You're talking about opportunities for oil and gas workers. But the assumption for a lot of them is that we're kind of getting rid of the oil and gas industry in order to put them off somewhere else. And you get, you know, you, you get thoughts of, of, of 92 and 93 and NCARP and TAGS in this province. There's nothing like that. If anything, what we are going to need to do, you know, particularly in the energy sectors, we're looking at lowering emissions, building up renewables, is attracting workers and increasing the number of workers that we're going to need in order to do that. Too often, I hear, you know, in the media, on social media, you know, the words just transition, like it's a magic wand that you wave at workers and suddenly they are transformed, or or that we do that with the economy. This is hard work. So, you know, the time for just throwing out phrases is over. Now the work begins. And this is what I've been at. And I think that what we got to do is match up people with those opportunities. When I get on your show and others and I talk about this, one of the big things that I need to do is to lower people's anxiety level about this and understand that this is actually massive opportunity, I think, for the country, particularly, I think, for this province. Because I don't think that we have any compunctions when it comes to change. And I actually think that people dive right in when we see where their opportunities lie. Where did everybody go? I mean, 6.5% of GDP growth last quarter. We recovered 112% of the jobs pre-pandemic. So with those numbers, where are the workers that were somewhere two years, three years ago? Where are they? Yeah, we're in a strange place. I mean, first of all, you know, I'm, I am very happy that, you know, we, we put in significant supports and the, and the employment numbers, uh, you know, remain high, certainly a lot higher than what we thought they would be coming out of this pandemic. Um, but, but yet, and we're seeing the same in the American marketplace as well. And yet, you know, we have significant labor shortages in some really key portfolios. Uh, that's something that I'm working on with Carla Qualtro, just trying to figure out how we, you know, how do we matchmake? A lot of this, and I hate saying this, but it's important to say is, you know, a lot of this is in provincial jurisdiction. So a lot of this is working with my provincial counterparts as well. I, I basically look after about, you know, 5% of the labor force of this country in federal jurisdiction. And the other 95, almost all of it really, is in provincial. So a lot of my, of my work is, is bringing people together to the table and finding out common strategies that we can land on. But it is a huge challenge. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know the, it's the biggest part of, of my life going forward, for sure. Appreciate your time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Minister Seamus Reagan, the Minister of Labor, the Liberal member for St. John's South Mount Pearl. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Andrew, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Not too bad. How about you? Well, it's been a little while since we chatted. I just thought I would throw you an update on... um some things we've chatted about before, uh, namely the uh, well, there's that RNC complaints investigation that's still ongoing. This is actually today is the seven-year anniversary of all this stuff beginning, and this stuff is still being investigated. Well, the investigation is complete, but from what I understand, there's like um, there's a number of novels sitting on the desk of the special commissioner, which had to be appointed as he, he's appointed independently by an act of uh, cabinet to oversee the matter, and he's still reviewing the uh, the volumes of data he's been handed. So there's that. But um, two other issues that I haven't really been able to speak about openly because uh, they were in mediation um, against the uh, the Department of Health and the Department of Justice uh, with, with with respect to the Human Rights Commission. I have two complaints filed that, uh, that sprung from that matter in that report that was released last summer. And, um, you know, I offered mediation, but... 
the other parties weren't willing to operate in good faith, so I had to withdraw it. Uh, so now I can speak a little more freely about it. What do you have to add? Go ahead. Oh, I just thought I would let you know that that's moved from uh, mediation to investigation at this point. Like, they've already accepted jurisdiction over it. It's, uh, it's an ongoing process, and it's... I mean, in this current day and age, when we're talking about freedom of speech issues and the right to have dissenting opinions on certain things, I think it's really important that you, you kind of look at how the government has handled those issues in the past, because this is seven years that this issue has been outstanding for me, where you've got the police officers that have you know, broken the public trust, committed perjury. Nobody's been punished. There's been no accountability. Um, there's been no justice. And seven years later, even though there's numerous court rulings, there's police reports saying that you know they forwarded criminal charges to the crown. The crown say, hey, we don't want to, we don't want to do anything with that. Those kind of actions breed a culture of impunity, where people can just commit these kind of offenses without ever seeing accountability for it. And I'm, I'm concerned about the state of our democracy moving forward, especially with this current government. So, as I'm moving the budget day, I just want to remind people that it's been seven years, and this government's been in power the whole time, and they've taken zero steps to rectify this issue. And now it's moved to a full-on human rights investigations against them, um, as well as the existing uh, outstanding criminal investigation or a sort of appeal of the uh, the results of the last criminal investigation, where they potentially uh, there was potential political interference in the judicial process. You know, so I'm I'm concerned that these things are just being allowed to go unaddressed, and that uh, we're, we're we're potentially sailing the ship directly into the rocks. You know, and I don't know how much these people that are that are sailing, you know, directing the ship can be trusted. Long drawn affair over the course of seven years, obviously, and hopefully get a resolution as soon as possible. But I certainly appreciate the update this morning. Yeah. Uh, one more thing. Uh, have you been watching the solar cycle? No. No. Yeah. Just spaceweather.com or solarham.net. Those are two interesting sites to keep track of because that that affects the Atlantic Loop idea, right? Like that. That's a very uh, a lot of geomagnetic variability in that region and as we head into the next solar cycle and it's it's looking to be a very very strong cycle uh that may you know axe that entire idea uh, i'll be bluntly honest i know very very little about it but uh i'll take your recommendation of the websites and again i appreciate the update this morning andrew thanks a lot yeah have a good one Patty. you too all the best bye-bye yeah. Uh, will I take the minister here? Because I think there's probably a lot to discuss. Maybe we'll take a break just a little slightly early and then we'll come back. We're going to talk about uh, Ukraine, population growth here in the province with the minister responsible for immigration, population growth and skills. Okay, so just a bit of an update here. There are changes to be made to the Atlantic Accord. But, of course, that would be a negotiation to amend it between the province and the federal government. And I, I appreciate the minister he provided just some additional information. I'll go ahead and read it a little clearer when we take this particular break so that I'm absolutely on the right track and provide the accurate information, as accurate as I can find it, and the information I can get from both the province and the federal government on that front. But there's a lot of issues that are yet to be discussed here today, and it doesn't matter what I bring up off the top of the program. It matters what you want to talk about, and you can do it right after this when we come back and we speak with the minister responsible for immigration, population growth, and skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Talk away. And welcome back to the program. Just before we get to line number one, I want to say on behalf of Jonathan and Allison Hickman to give a shout out and congratulations to all of the cities, towns, communities that have signed a proclamation to recognize today as Green Shirt Day. Of course, Green Shirt Day is to encourage registration to make your wishes known to be an organ or tissue donor, organ and tissue donor awareness programs. And of course, Green Shirt is to celebrate the life 
and the six lives that Logan Boulay saved when he donated his organs upon his death after the horrific crash. He was a member of the Humboldt Broncos, of course. The crash happened yesterday. He succumbed today in today's Green Shirt Day. So on behalf of Jonathan and Alison Hickman, Jonathan's an organ donor, or pardon me, recipient himself. So it's Green Shirt Day. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population Growth, and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks so very much for having me on, Patty. This is a, this is a, I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Yeah, listen, this is um, this is a bellwether day. This is a pretty important day, not only for what's about to happen in terms of the budget, which is going to command an awful lot of attention, but I think it uh, we're breathing. You know, we could say that, and I think by the tone of the conversation on your show this morning, it's there seems to be a sigh of relief or a, a breath of relief. But really, what I'm hearing, uh, Patty, it's confidence. Uh, the confidence that's coming forward in Newfoundland and Labrador as a result of the Beta Nord decision. This is huge. It breathes new life into the things that I'm directly involved with, which includes, you know, creating value uh, and recognizing the value and necessity of skilled trades, of promoting skills in the province. And when this project comes online, this is this is billions and billions of dollars and jobs and life that comes into our province. And it was hard fought, but it was and it was hard won, but it was won. And um, I got to give full credit to those you know who who brought us here. It was a team effort, but the premier really, really, really showed his stuff. Premier Andrew Fury. A lot of people said that this would never ever happen. In fact, Patty, a lot of people, a lot of people said that he would hold accountability for this decision and its consequence to the province. Well, today I say to you and to the province and to my Premier, Premier, you hold accountability for this decision. You hold the accountability of the win and its success with the team you that you brought around you. So hats off. This is, this is a brand new day for Newfoundland and Labrador. Next steps are important, of course, is what the province uh, chooses to do with the revenues that will come from Bader Nord, which I know is down the road. But to the best of your knowledge, and I know it's not your portfolio, but considering the fact that you brought it up, is... The province has long said they're committed to a 10% equity stake when some of the concerns, even for people who are quasi-supporters of the oil and gas industry, is about market security for the entire lifespan of the oil field. And I don't know what the world is going to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now, but from your own position, is an equity stake wise or should we let the company take the risk and simply reap the rewards? I think you always have to look at an equity stake from the specifics, the facts of the situation. To take a blanket an equity stake will always have merit. Uh, oil fields have different production rates. They, um, uh, you know, between sanctioning and, f- and first production and final production, there are a number of different factors which would affect what is best for the province, whether it be a royalty regime, an equity stake. And so, bluntly put, and as the Minister of Industry and Energy really put very, very well, we'll assess that. It's on the table, but it is not in any way, shape, or form a uh, finalized decision in any way. It's, uh, it's, it's something that would be open to. But I think the difference here, the difference here with our government is that there will be no ideological lead on this. We will not say that we have to have an equity position because we have to have an equity position. We will take the position, a pragmatic position, what is in the long-term best interest of Newfoundland and Labrador, given the overall life of the field, the production capacity of the field, the development strategy of the field, how do we meet the best revenues for our province, get the best job outcomes, how do we become the true principal beneficiary? Okay, let's move off your portfolio. 
So we know that we've welcomed Syrian and Afghan refugees, and we have set up an office in Warsaw to potentially attract or to aid Ukrainians who might want to make Newfoundland and Labrador their home. Numbers are one thing. Preparation, a job for them, English as a second language, uh, preparations in schools. There's a lot more to it than simply the bare-bone numbers, what it means for immigration or, pardon me, population growth. So where are we inside of being prepared to welcome refugees? We're very, immigrants, very pardon me. Well, that's, it's refugees, newcomers, uh, those who bring skills, those that we can nurture skills as they arrive here. This is really what Newfoundland and Labrador is all about, Patty, and I think that's we all share in that success. With our refugee, the former refugees from Syria and Afghanistan, I'll just give you by way of example, all of our Afghan, former Afghan refugee children are in placed in schools, uh, all are in housing throughout the province. Uh, and none, all are in, in housing that they found, you know, th- with help outside of social housing, outside of Newfoundland and Labrador housing. St. John's came forward and provided two units. So I guess the short answer that I'm providing is that we've done this before. We're really, really good at it, and we'll do it again because we are extremely prepared and welcoming for, uh, for, for refugees, and that's why our initiatives towards Ukraine are so important, given the humanitarian crisis. But our numbers also reflect success when it comes to economic newcomers, those who bring skills and jobs to us and for us. And we grew our population. It's, it's sometimes understated, or we've become accustomed to the notion that Newfoundland and Labrador's population is destined to decline. Last year, according to Stats Canada, Statistics Canada, the population in Newfoundland and Labrador grew for the very first time in over a decade by 2,800 people. Why? Because of immigration and immigration. Emigration. Our population, by the time that Beta Nord comes on stream, fully on stream, our population in Newfoundland and Labrador, 50% of everybody in our province will be over the age of 55. I mean, that's an incredible statistic. That's not going to change. Our, our, the rate of people passing away in our province versus the rate of new babies being born has now already gone in a decade from a one-to-one ratio to a two-to-one ratio. More people are passing away. And that is a reality that we all know and, and have to face. That's why immigration is still going to be so, so important in the future and why Beta Nord actually become, makes us – we've been an attractive place to come in the past – we're going to be in a more attractive place to come in the future. We have seen what it's meant over the years when oil became a big part of the annual budget and the reliance on, but what it's also meant on the ground, real things like uh, the price of homes and things. You know, it's, there's good news for governments, and you know, for programs that governments spend on to benefit the population, but it also comes with some other tricky side effects as well. Um, Let's talk about the office that has been established in Warsaw. I don't know what the right way to put this is because it's not about being judgmental of Ukrainians running for their very lives, but are we vetting potential newcomers from Ukraine to the province, whether it be with skills that they have and the opportunity, whether or not they speak English, those types of things? And I'm not trying to be judgy because I, I think immigration is critical. But are we trying to vet people that can come and work and have some transferable skills and possibly speak English already? What does that look like? It's a fair question. Uh, And the answer simply is yes. But we also recognize this is a humanitarian crisis. Uh, The people who come would choose Newfoundland and Labrador uh, from the Ukraine would choose it deliberately. uh, This is unlike other refugee movements. 
and I think this is a fine point that needs to, just a moment of explanation, is that when it came to Af- Syria or Afghanistan, it was Canada who actually selected the people who would come here. It was Canada that transported them to Canada. It was Canada that then immediately gave them permanent refugee status. In other words, full rights and benefits as a landed, as a landed Canadian. Uh, then, it was, of course, it was Canada that part- sent them to various places, various provinces. And it was Canada that then supported them once they arrived uh, as a, uh, on, an AIDS, on a needs basis for a full year. That's not happening in Ukraine. Canada is offering Ukrainians a three-year of travel visa to enter into Canada. We believe that it will be longer than three years, but right now the visa that Canada is offering Ukrainians is for a finite period of three years, and they're offering them a three-year open work permit. C'est tout. That's it. And so when we vet Ukrainians, what we also we have to understand is that this is by free choice of the Ukrainian to come to Canada and to come to Newfoundland and Labrador. Many of them will take a decision as to whether or not Newfoundland and Labrador is, under the circumstances, the right place for them. Job opportunities will be front and center. That, that would be if you and I were in this exact same situation as a young family from the Ukraine, especially a, a mother with children, You would take the decision, we would take the decision, we would all take the decision, I have to understand what's in my long-term best interest. Is coming to Newfoundland and Labrador a good idea, given the fact that I have to support myself? Will I face a welcoming community? Will I be able to get a job? So yes, in large measure, some of the things that I'd say is that this is not us to vet. We will be vetting it in, 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 in respect, but the Ukrainians themselves will be vetting that notion. Will They have to do what's in their best interest. We would do no different, you or I. So we will respond to a humanitarian crisis. We're rallying community in Newfoundland and Labrador right now to start generating wraparound supports, to identify housing, to identify job opportunities, to identify daycare, to identify all the things that make for a successful transition into our province. Mm-hmm. Community is leading that charge. And quite frankly, I'm anxious to see Ukrainians join the diversity of Newfoundland and Labrador and make us all stronger in the process. And in the process, we'll also be responding to a growing humanitarian crisis. The third largest concentration of Ukrainians or people of Ukrainian descent in this world is Canada, behind Ukraine and Russia, which is just a fascinating number to me that I didn't realize before this uh, invasion took place. This is a question that you will hear, I will hear, people will talk about all the time, is what kind of financial supports are in place? Because you hear this, the, the commentary that says, take care of our own first. What does it cost when I need X, Y, and Z, yet the immigrants or the refugees, the newcomers get X sort of support? What type of financial support is in place? Good question. You know, when we we bring forward, when we bring refugees, when we bring new Canadians, new new uh, uh, immigrants into uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, we do put our own first. Immigrants create jobs, they create wealth, they create economic stability and benefits to each and every one of us. That is proven over and over again. So we are doing this for our own, in our own interests. We're responding to a humanitarian crisis, but let's, let's call a spade a shovel. We're also doing this for our own interests. So, and you're quite right to point out that the, the whole, you, having someone leave a war zone, 
with basically three bags that they that they scraped on the gravel as they left the Ukraine to try to get to Warsaw. Uh, they do not have a lot of material items, a lot of possessions with them. But what they have is soul. They have skills. They have education. They have capacity. And that's what we're going to harness. But in the process, we're reflecting on the fact that Unlike other refugee movements, such as Syria and Afghanistan, the Ukraines do not get the benefit of Canadian government refugee supports. There is no, there's not even travel assistance at this point in time. I'm lobbying the federal government to, to create those supports for Ukrainians. But at this point in time, there's not even travel assistance to get to Canada. There's no housing assistance in the, in the short term there's no, or the long term. There's no, um, there's no income stability that's provided to uh, to Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian refugees. It's one of the main reasons why, Patty, and Newfoundland and Labrador stands tall and unique in this. We are offering both MCP coverage and uh, drug card coverage in the short term so that we can be a welcoming environment for Ukrainians. No other province, to my knowledge, at this point in time is doing that, but I suspect other provinces will be doing that. Why? Because they are going to recognize what we have already recognized, and we recognize this because of our Ukrainian desk in Warsaw. We're on the ground collecting intel. They're going to do that because it's an absolute necessity, and it's the right thing to do. So Newfoundland and Labrador stands tall already as a leader in the country. That's part of retention, too. You know, it has to be an attractive place, not to be flippant, but it would be a shame if these courageous, resilient Ukrainians made their way to the province of Bay St. George, for instance, where we understand there's a pocket of Ukrainians, uh, to find a community that looks much like much more like they do in Saskatoon or something, Absolutely. where I lived amongst a bunch of Ukrainians when I lived out west. Yeah. Uh, good people. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. One quick point on that. People are asking me, when can we expect to see Ukrainians come to Stephenville or Lewisport or Mount Pearl? It's a good question. The truth is, and this is really important, there will be no government direction of Ukrainians to your community. It is, and as I said, as, as, I, as I stated earlier and clearly, it is a matter of self-choice. That's why I'm working with municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, with the Association for New Canadians, with Chambers of Commerce, with, uh, with community organizations throughout the province, to create welcoming environments within communities, within Stephenville, within Lewisport, within Mount Pearl, within Happy Valley Goose Bay. Co start collecting the resources that need to be uh, collected, such as information about housing, information about jobs, and the Ukrainians will come to your community when they um, when they make that choice, and they'll do so because of the welcome that you offer. And we'll, we, you and I, could speak more about that in the future. But today, today is Beta Nord Day, and the success that hard work brought from um, an incredible effort. People said it could not be done, and when it, and if it wasn't to be done, it was to be held on the head of the of the premier. Today. It is held on the head of the Premier. Congratulations, Andrew Fury. Appreciate your time, Minister Byrne. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Jerry Byrne is a Liberal member for Cornerbrook, and he's the Minister responsible for Immigration, Population Growth, and Skills. Let's take a break. Don't go away. You're the OCM 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Ruby, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, a few days ago, I heard someone on the OCM on Open Line talking about the mail, where something was delayed in the mail, or they never got no mail for a while. So I want to tell my story. Okay, go ahead. 
uh, uh, I was missing a lot of stuff that I usually get for about two years. So anyway, I phoned at the mail people, but they just said, you know, well, maybe they never send it out to you or whatever. So there was a lady moved upstairs. And uh, one day I went to the door, and she stood by the door, and she had a arms full of mail and 22 pieces of mail dated back so far as, two, as 2020. And uh, I asked her, I said, uh, how come you got my mail? And she said, well, I asked for a mailbox. She said, they gave me this one. And she, when I opened it, she was full of your mail. And I was after, and I written myself, you know, phone different people. I get other receipts and that because I couldn't, they never, I never received mine. So uh, I had mail from banks, from church from no receipts from my church or nothing like that. And it was hauling this bunch of mail, 22 pieces. So I phoned phoned them and I said, you know, what's the matter with your mailing service? Have you got a new, someone new on or what? And they said, no, but they said, this happens sometimes. Now that was from 2020 until now we're in 2022. So... I left a message, and I said I wanted the manager to call me because, I, to me, someone could have stolen my identity. He's the right person got the mailbox. They could have took, took everything I had in the mailbox, which was a lot of stuff, and uh, I never did hear it back. So you say she was assigned that mailbox, you mean by Canada Post, inside one of the super mailboxes? Yeah, one of the mailboxes on my street. Okay, so... If you already had that mailbox, how does anybody sign a second person to the same mailbox simply because know. it's the same address with we an apartment? We don't know. We just Strange. don't know. And if that mail was lying in the box from 20 to 20, 20, 20. and, uh, you know, I got upset with the church people because I never got my receipt and all this kind of stuff, so they gave me another one. And all my bank statements was there. I never used to get no bank statements bank statements. I wonder what happened. And when she moved in upstairs and they gave her a mailbox, they happened to give her the one next to mine. Okay. And like I said, I could not believe my eyes because 22 pieces of mail is a lot of mail. Especially when it's dated from 2020. So I was wondering, you know, if this is what people got to put up with. And believe it or not, they're still the lady upstairs is still getting some of my mail. Have you called Canada Post? I did. And they said, well, the manager would get back to you or whatever, but I never did hear anything. Well, hopefully you get it sorted out because you're right. Uh, maybe you just got lucky that the person who was taking your mail, you know, you, you would think, though, that like if a piece of mail ends up inadvertently in my box for my neighbor, I'm not bringing it home. I'm dropping it off. No, and I, I don't know why true. everybody wouldn't do the exact same thing. But same I guess thing. some people out there are you know, maybe different and the worry, I'll tell you, my be- biggest concern about it was my identity. Of course. You know, uh, stuff from the bank and, and, and other stuff I had there. 
and I never received it, so that I had to go back to people and get more receipts and whatever. And I mean, I think this house of service. I mean, when you come down with 22 pieces of mail, that's a lot of mail, and they're still doing it. Well, hopefully it comes to some sort of end, whether it be through Canada Post's effort or this lady will immediately, every time she puts her hand in the box and the mail is for you, she'll put it in your hand versus bring it upstairs yeah, very, and, and pile oh, up yeah, to 22 very, pieces. Very, very. I know that. I haven't got I haven't got to worry about that. Okay. But it's just if someone else happened to move besides this lady and and wasn't never just threw it in the garbage or just, you know, went whatever or looked through it or whatever, you know, I think it's a very poor service myself. Uh, certainly not good enough, and uh, like not I say, hopefully enough. the lady will do her bit to ensure that. Oh, she will. She will. I have got sound of. I have got no worries about that whatsoever, uh, and because you know she always said that, uh, don't worry about it. But it just bothered me because, like I said, who wants to lose other people open up their mail and read it? I get your point yeah. entirely, Ruby, and I appreciate the call this morning. Yeah. So I just thought, well, you're not alone, or the guy that was talking about. I said, you're not, I said to myself, you're not alone, because it happened to me, too. So I'm going to give them another call. I was waiting for them to call me back, but they haven't called me back. And uh, But I'm going to give them another call and ask them what kind of service they're running. Fair ball. Like and keep us in the loop. Give me an update when you have one, Ruby, and thanks for your time this morning. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's see. Let's try to stay on break times on time today. When we come back, uh, Clifford wants to talk about the fishery. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Jean Charest was the Deputy Minister of Deputy Prime Minister of Canada in 1993 and, of course, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. He remained in that role until he went back to Quebec to run as the leader of the Liberal Party and went on to form government in 2003. Now Mr. Charest is back in the political action t- trying to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Join us on line number two is Jean Charest. Monsieur Charest, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. So an awful lot of talk recently about defense spending. Now, the government has talked about uh, buying the F-35s, and there was a lot of confusion back when former Prime, Prime Minister Harper p- proposed the same thing between the PBO and the Auditor General. Public backlash went by the wayside. So we've been fighting that fight for quite a long time. But you've got some sweeping big commitments for defense spending and for veteran services. Where do we start? Well, we start by committing and respecting that commitment to invest up to 2% of our GDP in spending. That's our NATO commitment. We haven't done that since the days of a conservative government, and we have to work our way back there. That spending, Patty, isn't going to happen overnight, by the way. I mean, we're talking about some very uh, serious commitments in terms of procurement on planes or submarines or ships, so that has to be done in a way that is uh, is rigorous so that's part of the spending but also i'd add to that i would open two uh, bases in northern canada in the arctic uh, one of my real concerns is that that part of canada is not uh, a part that we occupy we're not exercising our sovereignty and uh, and it is you know not a lot of people know that but even our american neighbor does not recognize uh, the northwest passage as being Canadian territory. They they continue to argue that it's an international passage. I'd put a deep water port in there, and then I'd clean up the procurement process. So that's that's a big part of what we do. But I also, Patty, I wouldn't. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention more support for veterans 
In 2006, we changed the veteran compensation uh, system to put in lump sums instead of pensions for those who had been disabled or hurt. I would return to a uh, a pension system that was generous, as it was for the veterans of the Second World War and the Korean War, and even better, with more benefits for training, for starting a business, for buying a house. I think that's also extremely important. If we want to attract more troops, we need to treat these special Canadians the way they deserve as, as citizens who put their life in harm's way to protect their freedoms. Recruitment is way down right across the board in the Canadian uh, military, in all sectors of the military. So obviously that's a concern. We need our men and women to have the best equipment and gear, obviously. One area where, you know, we spend some 1.4% of GDP as opposed to the 2% NATO commitment that people are striving to get back to. But is it not more accurate to say that the... The lowest military spending in modern history was under the last Conservative government and it has been increased since, but not certainly anywhere near where NATO would like it to be, our, our NATO members. So isn't that more accurate as to defense spending history? Well, the, re- the reason why we measure it against percentage of GDP is to get the right metrics on what we're spending. How much are we committed relative to our wealth? So if you go back in time, of course, the amount, the aggregate amount of spending would be lower because it was a smaller economy. That's why the 2% Patty number is the one that everyone refers to because that speaks to the real measurable effort that we make in our economy and our country to meet our spending. And uh, the last time we were at 2% uh, was under the Mulroney government. And since then, we've slipped. And, and, and Canadians, uh, you know... Uh, deserve better we the war in europe has now shed a whole new light on our responsibility but then push it a bit patty i mean we are physical neighbors of the russians in the arctic i mean we we have a neighboring border and this is russia and, and yet we're not up there we're not occupying our territory and this has become an urgent matter i think for the country we can't do it overnight you know building a military base is a is a very serious endeavor and you have to do it right in a, in a part of the world that has a very sensitive environment, plus uh, indigenous populations. So, but this, is, this whole conflict has shed a whole new light on how we have to be an adult in the room. We can't be Boy Scouts about our own country. We have to defend our country, and this is what I want us to do. We think Russia's the other side of the world, when in fact it's only 53 miles across the Bering Strait from Alaska, so it's right there. Um, You you talk about an integrated foreign policy and defense review and investments in cybersecurity. Is it not time for NATO allies and the world to consider cybersecurity actual defense spending? Because that's where the modern-day warfare takes place. I mean, we haven't seen an armed conflict like we see now in Europe since the Second World War. So... Can cyber spending actually be considered defense spending? We know it has implications for national security. It, yeah. it, we know that right here in this province, our healthcare meta-tech system was hacked. We don't even know what the actual outcome of that will be as of yet. But isn't cybersecurity defense spending? Well, that's a very you know enlightened question. It is a new world. Conflicts are carried out in a different way. What we're seeing now in Ukraine resembles the classic type of conflict we saw in the past. But what you're talking about is is also extremely important because we're into a new type of conflict using drones, for example, and uh, and uh, what we call a, 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 there was a cold war and a warm war or something that is quasi world wars, where you just you know you just don't go into a straight conflict, but you keep provoking the other side using cyber. 
as a as a tool and as a weapon. And so, yes, and NATO, by the way, uh, if I remember correctly, has been looking at put, doing a cyber command to be able to uh, to to counter that also. So that's part of the new. It's part of the new conflicts, and we have to prepare for that and uh, and be ready and and you could push it further patty it includes uh, space i mean the americans created a, a command for uh, space because space was not supposed to be militarized there's treaties to that effect but it is being i mean the russians blew up a satellite not too long ago in space to test their ability to do so so even space has become a militarized area and the arctic patty was not supposed to be militarized the russians control what we call the northern passage and by the way these are new trade routes it isn't just about these are with climate change these are new trade routes that are opening up that are going to be used and so even the north is becoming the arctic has become militarized and that that calls for canadian action on our part to act like an adult and to get out there and to assume our responsibilities by occupying our own land Defending our sovereignty is uh, an obvious requirement for government to be out in front of. But, you know, when we talk about defending ourselves, if the uh, online systems for water delivery, electrical grids, pipelines could be compromised, that is certainly something we have to defend vigorously because that is the the brave new world of actual where we we find ourselves at risk. But I'll leave it at that. I just wonder if it's time to kind of refocus the conversation from missiles and anti-tank missiles and that type of armament into what is much more realis- realistically going to hit us right here where we live. Well, we need, we need to do that. For example, part of what I would do is drones for the north. We need to modernize our radar system, the, the do what used to be called the do radar system. We have a great agreement with the United States called NORAD, uh, which works efficiently. And uh, we cost share with our American neighbor on the cost of, uh, of uh, these uh, radar systems. So those are part of the things we, we need to do. There's new submarines also, uh, Patty. We need a new fleet of submarines to be able to operate efficiently. And so there's going to be a menu of things there. It is costly, yes, and it's not all going to be done overnight. It has to be done right. We have to get our procurement system cleaned up because it's a mess. Uh, you know, our, our procurement system, everyone agrees. I mean, it just doesn't work for us. And, and, and we, we have to stop these decisions like the F-35 where we slam the brakes on. The Trudeau government slammed the brakes on in 2015 because we were going to buy F-35s. Here we are, seven years later, seven years lost, and they say, well, now we want to buy the F-35s. I mean, we've lost all this time. We can't continue to do that. Yeah, procurement is interesting. I mean, you know, things like buying musty, moldy, used British submarines has certainly taken us a step backwards. Is the F-35 the right jet as opposed to the Gripen or what have you? I don't know much about it, but I hear the debate. You and I are not the experts, uh, you know, admittedly. (laughs) You know, you need a little humility, humility, (laughs) excuse me, about this. But from the, I think from the evaluations, it's probably the best, uh, from what I can see, uh, the best choice. Uh, we already invested in the, the development of this plane by Lockheed Martin. There was uh, an agreement reached uh, several years before where the individual countries invested in the development of the plane and, the, and a piece of the royalties that come with that. And there are uh, industrial benefits for Canada that will be derived from this. So from what I, I see out there, I think the F-35 is the, is the right choice. Now we have to get on to it. But you know what it's going to cost? It's going to cost close to $20 billion mm-hmm. for 88 planes. I mean, this, this is a lot of money. We have to invest it, so we need to be smart about it, uh, what we invest in. 
we see some of the people you're running against. Mr. Poliev drawing pretty big crowds. And, you know, whether it be Miss Lewis, that people like the cut of her jib, or Mr. Brown. What does the Conservative Party of Canada look like under Jean Charest's leadership as opposed to, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are going to re- reveal, but it looks like yourself and Mr. Polyev are the two front runners. What's a Charest-led party look like differently from a Polyev-led party? And, and Patty, to, to talk about the race, the race is about memberships. It's the members who will vote. We have until the 3rd of June to recruit new members and then to persuade them and get them to vote by the latest the 10th of September. So that's that's what the race is about. It's not about, uh, you know, assembling the biggest crowds. Or So I'm focused. I'm, I'm here in Newfoundland, Labrador, where I, I'm going to do very well. I know the province well, and I have a great team with Eugene Manning and Carol Ancy, who's co-chairing. Now, what will the party look like? It will be a real conservative party, because I believe in conservative values, which includes fiscal conservatism, market-based economy, economic policies, Patty, that allow us to develop and grow our economy, as opposed to just spending. I mean, the problem with the Liberals is that they're all on spending, but they're not on growing the economy. That's the, that's the problem of the last few years. And then supporting families, which is the nucleus of our, our society, and respecting the rule of law and, and law and order. You know, you talk to Mr. Putyev, Mr. Putyev's running, he supported a blockade. I mean, here's a guy who makes laws. He's a legislator. He has the privilege of making laws, changing laws, and he's breaking laws. And supporting people who break laws. I mean, you you can't do that. Laws are not a buffet from which you choose what you like or dislike if you're a legislator. And if you want to be the chief legislator of the country, you have a responsibility. I think he disqualifies himself when he behaves that way. And so the party I will lead will be a national party. And uh, the Conservative Party of Canada is destined to be the party that unites the East and the West. And that's when the country works. I saw that when I was in a government that did the Atlantic Accord for Newfoundland, Labrador, and Hibernia. That's the kind of government you need, a conservative government that makes, it has the ability to make the country work and make big things happen. When you talk about the spending that the Liberals have entertained the last few years, and you mentioned being there for individuals and their families, the vast majority of this money and the whopping big deficit is because of pandemic supports. There wasn't a whole lot of criticism for these programs, whether it be wage subsidies or the CERB or the CREB. But if the spending was too much, where was it too much? Because for a lot of people's money, if there wasn't that type of support in place, economic recovery would have been much more difficult. We all agreed that we had to spend more. And we agreed, by the way, that we needed uh, a very flexible monetary policy, which central banks did all over the world, United States, Europe, here in Canada. We agreed on that. Canada is the country that among, if not, probably the country that spent the most petty and on all sorts of things. Coming out of this pandemic, now is the time to return to a fiscal conservative agenda that's going to allow us to rebalance our books, to do it in an orderly way. That's what I did when I was in Quebec, by the way. I mean, we returned to balanced budgets. And when I, and when the Liberal government uh, left and, and Mr. DeGaulle got elected, he had an $8 billion surplus. $8 billion. You're not going to see that in your lifetime again. And a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario. That, that's because we brought a lot of discipline to spending, which gives you the space to spend. Mr. Trudeau could spend because the Harper government that was came before him was a disciplined government economically, and, they, and there was a lot of space for him to, to spend. We have to return to that balanced approach that allows you the freedom to spend. And the, and the spending has to be balanced. Now, what I see now is a government that, whose only agenda is spending more, and, and in areas of provincial jurisdiction. 
Well, and, and nothing on growing the economy or hardly anything at all on growing the economy. That's the problem that we have now. I wish we had more time to talk about economic growth and whether or not you think net debt to GDP is a fine measure of where we are. You know, we did retain our AAA credit rating, which is interesting given yeah. the amount of money we've borrowed. I wish you good luck in signing up uh, members and uh, stay in touch. Thank you very much, uh, Patty, and it's great to be back on the OCM. Thank you. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Jean Shrey. You'd like to be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, Clifford, you're on the air. Yes, uh, uh, yes good morning. Good morning to you. Yes. Uh, I was listening to uh, John Shrey, uh I'm from Quebec, uh, and he was a uh, premier for I don't know how many years John Charest was. But from my uh, area, uh, when he was a premier out of Quebec, he never done nothing for our, for our village or anywhere on the lower North Shore. We're stuck here. We're my village. It lasts long, yes. From last long, they can go right down. Right, right, where you're, where you're to now. They can drive out. But from last long up, we don't have no road. And Mr. Randy Jones, he was uh, the, the mayor out of the lower North Shore, MRC, uh, all of them. Yeah. And for 30 years, they've been fighting for to get a road from out of the lower North Shore to get out. And which we don't we don't have yet. They put a boat there, uh, a ferry uh, on, in Quebec uh, that cost them millions and millions of dollars. And this spring, if they see the pan ice, they're going to turn back with our groceries and everything else. Which we, if we had a raw trailer. The trucks will come in with our gross race. Yeah. So this is a situation that on Lauren Northshore we have. Yeah. In St. Augustine, they were trying to get it from the Pakashippi across the St. Augustine River. They were trying to get a bridge. The Pakashippi and the other side, they, 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 they're going to go in boats for to go to a bank. And outboard boats. Same as Newfoundland. Well, they knew for go to outboard boats, you know. Yeah. But this is this is the way you gotta travel. Yeah. Which is we're in two thousand and twenty two and the pre, uh, the the Prime Minister of Canada, he can go to any place in the world. Which we never seen his face in a lower North Shore. What outcome? John Charest did. Ray Levesque. Only, pre- only Prime Minister ever come on the lower North Shore is Brian Maroney. Okay. I wish we did get something from him. Yeah. But the rest of them, we never got nothing. So, John Charest is trying to get in again. Yeah. Which he didn't do nothing for our, for, for, for my part, he never done nothing. Yeah. He tried to get it wrong, but he never finished it. So, what's your opinion? Are you been on the lower North Shore, Patty? No, I haven't. No, but uh, we're in a bad situation, yeah. And the government don't try to help. Help the ones. I've been on the municipality, yeah, in, in my village, and 
We go to Nutter Valley, so that are six miles from there. But the, the, the two of them joined together. Yeah. We have a mayor, Randy Jones, yeah, and he's tried his best for 30 years. He's tried for 30 years. He, he, he even went to Ottawa for a good water line with two bucks of water. And it pulled down the mess of, uh, in Ottawa on the bridge. How many yeah. people live so in your village? It. How many people so live in your it. village? Eh? How many people live in your village? Well, in my village right there now, there's only about 70, 70, uh, 70 odd people. Yeah. It was more than that one time. But after the fishery, fishery went down, that's when on the cause was a big uh, downfall. Yeah. Uh, Clifford, it, was big, it was a big downfall. Yeah, people then tried to, you know, left the coast and went to other villages. Yeah, for for jobs. Yeah. Did you want to say we anything? Had fish, oh, we had man. a fish plant there. Uh, we had a fish plant there. I, I worked for thirty for just for forty years in a fish plant where I worked. Yeah, but when the fishery closed down, that was it. Yeah, and that was run by the Daly Brothers in Newfoundland. Yeah. <clears throat> but okay. we're in a bad situation, yeah. And no one seems to know that. I mean, John Ray probably will if he get in, but even in before, he never done any. No. <clears throat> but uh, this, and I, 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 I gotta say, well, well, I, I, that topic, I'll just put one side, and I, I'm getting a. Uh, uh, the second topic, well, is... Uh, we have to do it very quickly. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, it's a fishery. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, the DFO closed down, the, uh, shut down the mackerel and, and Aaron. Uh, and we're on the, we're, we're on the lower now, Shore. We got the same situation in Newfoundland. Yeah. And it's going to, it's going to cost it. These people over there, it's going to be a bad. Yeah. It's going to be very, very bad. But just remember, Patty, you know, I watched the, the, the Saltwater Cowboys on CBC, yeah, and the, the, and the, the hair is saying what they, what they use, yeah. And on the fish rate, they're always blaming the seals for it. But it wasn't the seals that, that, that done it. It was a technology that took down the fish rate, yeah. When they got the technology off it, that's what that's what ruined the fishery. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things involved in the yeah, demise well, of some of the wild stocks. Okay, Clifford. Yes, All right. Yeah. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah. I, I appreciate the call this morning. Thanks okay, a lot. Okay, sir. And I thank you for the, for the, for listening to me. My yeah. pleasure. Take care. Yeah, take care. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. We are going to take a break, but when we come back, we're looking forward to this conversation. The Lauren Scholarship is one of the most prestigious and most valuable scholarships in the country. There's over 5,100 applications Canada-wide. Two of the 35 eventual recipients are from this province. Sarah Janes goes to Stephenville High School in port port East. James Drover goes to Holy Heart High School here in St. John's. They both join us right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As advertised before going into the break, uh, 35 of the Lawrence Scholar recipients are from, two of them are from this province, and they both join us on the line. That's Sarah Janes and James Drover on lines three and four. Welcome to the show to you both. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Congratulations. Thank you so much. 
I mean, it's an outstanding recognition. But, you know, the Lawrence Scholarship is not just about your grades and performance in school. It's about you as a person, the commitment you make to your community, other things that you're involved in. Sarah, give us some background as to what was included in your application that put you over the top to be one of the 35. Um, well, I'm really involved in Girl Guides, and I have been since I was eight years old. So now I junior lead with another group. And I also did the Duke of Edinburgh program. So I did the bronze and silver, and I'm working on my gold. And I just try to get out and volunteer in the community as much as possible. So I guess that made my application stand out. Uh, same question to you, James, even though I'm familiar with a couple of things you're working on. <laughs> yeah, so um, at the start of COVID, I started a bike repair business called Flat Out Bikes uh, with my brother. And, you know, through that business, we did some volunteer work in the community, giving bikes back to uh, new Canadians and uh I also led my school student council and I'm the vice president of my school's mental health advocacy club. And yeah, that's it. We've been talking about mental health a lot on this program, and I think the issue has been further exacerbated throughout the pandemic. James, tell us a little bit about what you, what's going on inside your mental health advocacy group at school. Yeah, so for the most part, um, our group connects students to guidance so like we noticed earlier on that there was kind of an issue with um people uh accessing and you know being connected to guidance because it's, it's kind of a scary thing you know it's uh it's still a little bit stigmatized so we focus mostly on you know taking away the stigma and educating our members and the school about you know what mental health and mental illness uh illnesses are and uh you know through that we've you know, directed a lot of students to resources and to, you know, the guidance within our school to try and uh, sort that out. It's important work, and it's important for young Canadians to also be involved because part of the solution will be long-term. And for young Canadians to know there's some supports out there from, for them to get some guidance is going to be critically important. And I think that's part of what you do in the community as well, Sarah. I know you tutor, so being part of, you know, tutoring your peers, whether it be your, your fellow classmates and or younger groups, tell us about the work you do in tutoring. So one of my favorite things about tutoring is helping people find ways to learn that works for them because school is so much more than the grades and so sometimes when students are struggling in school or the grades aren't where they want to be it discourages them and then they don't come and then they miss out on the social aspects and all the events and activities that come with that and it's really unfortunate so by taking the material and breaking it down in a way so that different people can understand it and seeing them light up when they understand a concept it's really rewarding. Uh, for you both, this is a bit of a boorish question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What was the value of your scholarships? Uh, $100,000. Same for you, Sarah? Yeah, $100,000. It's amazing, and I'll admit, uh, just because for information's sake, my wife was one of the evaluators for the Lawrence Scholarship, so I've seen an awful lot of impressive scholarship uh, applications go through. I try not to pry into people's private matters, but every now and then she says, oh my God, just look what this young person is doing, and it's just truly amazing. Beyond the value, and that's a real big support for post-secondary work, it opens up opportunities, whether it be for immersive learning in other parts of the country or other places outside of Canada. What does this mean for you? We'll start with you, Sarah, for the opportunities that it opens up beyond the money. So it really just gives me the opportunity to get out of my home province, and that is, well, with the money to get out. But also, I've always wanted to go and travel and try all kinds of different things. So with the summer experiences that come with the scholarship, 
I could go to other parts of the world and work for summer or other parts of Canada. And for someone who's like me, never left the island before, it's going to be really incredible to experience all of that. Where do you plan on going? I'm planning to go to Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. So it's going to be really exciting. Working towards what? Uh, so I'm working towards my Bachelor of Science. That's what I went in for. And hopefully the end career goal is pathology or the medical examiner career path. Fascinating. James, same thing to you. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, it's just kind of, uh, it's some motivation to get out of my comfort zone. And I mean, uh, I am super excited about the opportunity to, you know, get outside to Newfoundland and uh, see all the world has to offer. But, uh, you know, otherwise, I probably would have just stayed here. And, you know, there's, it's a great place here, but, uh, you know, I'd love to see more. And uh, so I'm planning to go to UBC uh, in the fall and study psychology there and uh, hopefully work towards uh, bettering the mental health situation in our country. And then hopefully both of you, upon completion of your educational, post-secondary education, will return back to the province. Uh, It's brilliant stuff, what you're both doing, along with so many others who were part of the 5,100 Canadians who applied for this scholarship. So once again, congratulations, enjoy your summer, and best of luck in school. And thanks for making time for the show this morning. Thank you very much. Great to have you on. That's Sarah Janes and James Drover, both winners of the Lauren Scholarship Prize, $100,000, and it opens up massive opportunities for them. And I tell you what, Lauren Scholars, when you can add that along with Duke of Edinburgh and open up a a bike repair business and teaching mechanics and mental advocacy, their CVs are going to look pretty brilliant when they finish school and look for long-term employment. Like I say, hopefully that uh, they'll return to the province. You know, we spoke with Minister Byrne earlier about population growth and immigration strategies and preparation for immigrants. Of course, all going to be an important part of our future. The a couple of stats kind of reports uh, ago, we were the only popul- only province in the country that saw a population decrease. We've seen a slight uptick since I think is 2,800 people have been added to the population of the province. So some good work being done on that front. Boy, congratulations to Sarah and James. Great stuff. All right, quick check in on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Suggest comments, questions, topics, whatever you like. Same thing with our email address. It's openline at vocm.com. Someone has sent, well, actually a few people have sent uh, along requests, and I've replied to them regarding the conversation we have with Dr. Kathy Balsam. She's one of the pharmacists over at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic. People are looking for contact information, so I'll just give the phone number and the email address out one more time. Uh, So the, oh no, that's not the right place. Let me see here. I get into our team. Okay, so if the if it's Dr. Balsam, for instance, the phone number at the at the clinic itself is 864-2274. In addition to that, if you'd like to drop an email and request a face-to-face, which is now being done again at the clinic, it's MTS. That's med- med- Medication Therapy Services, mtsclinic.mon.ca. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, the Shadow Minister for Industry, Energy, and Technology, representing the PC Party, of course, that's Lloyd Parrott. He wants to talk Beta Nord, and then we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Terranova. He's the Shadow Minister of Industry. Energy and Technology. That's Lloyd Parrott. Morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's about. Thanks for asking. How about you? Always good. Always good. Same answer every time you ask. <laughs> yeah. Well, same answer for me pretty much, too. I just try to switch up the phrases. 
Uh, okay, so Bader Nord got done. You were in the news repeatedly, clamoring for the project to be greenlit. It has. So your initial reaction? Yeah, so uh, my initial reaction is quite simple. There's no way to be negative. I mean, uh, obviously, we have to wait for more details to come out, but it's great news for the province uh, and even better news for the men and women of the industry and certainly the residents of the entire province and Canada. It's a great project. Um, you know, I would say uh, I heard Minister Parsons on this morning, and he deserves a huge shout-out. He's been a, he's been a fierce advocate. Uh, I'm not so certain that... All of his colleagues were on board, but uh, I'm definitely, uh, you know, I wasn't impressed by the silence publicly, certainly from our federal liberals. Uh, he made the comment that it's better late than never. Uh, while I agree with that, there never should have been a delay, and, and it still scares me. I mean, the whole fact that there was a delay, 73 years in the Confederation, and, uh, you know, people in Newfoundland and Labrador, not just, not just the men and women that work in industry, but uh, politicians from both sides of the house and people from industry and, uh, you know, just uh, people from outside the country who want to come here and do this project had to hold a full-court press uh, for months. And uh, this project should have been approved on its merits months ago, and, and it wasn't. And this federal minister had the opportunity to read an impact assessment that was signed off on, and... Uh, and sign it and move it forward, but we're still held ransom, and it scares me for the industry going forward, but uh, it's a great project and it's great news, there's no question. We'll never really know exactly what was behind the delay, I don't imagine we'll ever really know what was behind it, but importantly for me, and I'll get your perspective on it, the next steps are critically important. Now, Equinor will make a business decision, and that looks pretty good because they're floating over a drill rig as we speak. They say that their business model is about $35 a barrel for break-even, so we're trading still above $100 today so everything points in the right direction there but it's equity stake and jobs here they're the next two things that the province has to negotiate with equinor from your perspective is an equity stake a good idea uh as i said patty we'd have to see the details but i i will tell you this i'm not against it but i'd have to understand exactly what it looks like and right now we don't um but i do believe that there's prosperity to come from beta north and that we ought to be looking at an equity stake uh but having said that, we know the financial situation we're in right now, and and there's you know there's questions as to whether or not we can afford an equity stake. Uh, my hope is that uh, there's a way for us to prosper from this project, and if an equity stake is what's the best business decision for the province, then we should be involved. Um, but you're right when you say right now, this is when the heavy lifting starts. Right, we need to be the primary beneficiaries of this resource, and not just this one, all of them. Uh, and and we need to ensure that as many men and women from Newfoundland and Labrador are employed on this project, not just during construction, not just during operations, but entire life of field, engineering, everything that's going to happen over the next couple of years between now and 2028 to get this rig offshore. Um, and, and I guess one, one of the comments you just made about details, uh, we'll never know the details. Well, Patty, we should find the details out pretty quickly because with the announcement of Beta Nord, it opens the door for this province to very quickly reverse its uh, decision on seismic. It opens the door for us to start a full-court press on West White Rose. It opens the door for us to start pushing back against the minister on the land sales delay. It opens the door for us to start looking at the LNG facility at Grassy Point. And it opens the door for us to really push exploration and try and attract people here. And if this government does none of those, then we know that there were major trade-offs for this project. But we need to start pushing for that stuff now. What does full core press for West White Rose mean? Because we've already floated them some money. It didn't get us anywhere. So what do you mean by that? 
Well, I, I just mean encouraging encouraging them to get men and women back to work and get this project going. It's my belief that the project is too far along for it to be cancelled. Uh, you know, we've got to rig this. Uh, the portion that's being done down in the States is pretty much done. We're, we're substantively complete here, and I think it's time for that project to ramp back up and, and get that project finished. What's government's role in that, though? Because the number that comes to mind is $45 million that came from that oil and gas fund, totaled somewhere in $350 million or something along those lines. So what else can the government do on that front? Because that'll be a business decision. Because even when you read Synovus material, they don't really talk about our offshore. So what do you mean by the government and their role in getting that going again? Yeah, so Synovus, uh, you know, I mean, they don't have a strong background in the offshore, obviously. Uh, but, but I will say government does have a role to play from an industry standpoint. And, and you know, I don't know if there's tax breaks or different oil regimes that we can look at. Uh, but we need to be working with industry, certainly, to try and push the project forward. And government has a role to play with industry, and we've demonstrated that at the refinery. We've demonstrated it certainly right here with Beta Nord, uh, and we've demonstrated it with the, with the Terra Nova FPSO. So government does have a role to play. I'm not saying sell the farm. I'm saying we need to start pushing to get things moving forward. And, and if that's just vocally, we need to start getting vocal. But it's very silent from government on Westway Rose. The government federally has talked about phasing out any subsidies for oil and gas companies. You know, they remain quite profitable even throughout the pandemic, and they do their own thing. They make their own business decisions. Is it also time for the province to phase out any financial subsidies to oil and gas companies? Uh, so, Patty, I'd say this. Uh, you know, go to H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Foundation or go to Kids Eat Smart or go to a lot of, uh, a lot of different not-for-profit charities or hospital organizations in this province and look at exactly what industry has done over the years. Uh, while we subsidize them, I can tell you right now, we would be hurting far worse than we are now, certainly from a medical standpoint, if if these companies didn't stand up to the plate for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and subsidize things like our cancer care uh, facility and, and Kids Eat Smart and other things. So, you know, it, it's not government's role to uh, create jobs, certainly, but it is government's role to encourage jobs. And, you know, we need financially, we're in the worst place we've been ever. And it's time for us to start finding a way to grow our economy. And if growing our economy means taking advantage of our natural resources, we have to do that. And and we have to keep in mind that, you know, we, we need to transition into a green future. But this project makes all kinds of sense as a part of that transition, as do the LNG uh, transshipment terminal at Grassy Point. And, and we need to take advantage of those resources. If not, how do we pay for things? Do you have any better understanding than I do about the amendments made to Bill 61 to allow for some wind development, whether it be for self-generation or export? Because proximity to the market is the key for wind. So if we're not the customer, and we probably won't be the customer because we have to be the customers of Muskrat Falls as per the federal loan guarantee, do you know any more about it than I do or any private companies that are kicking the tires, whether it be Biotic Energy or others? A lot more questions than answers, Patty, and timing is suspect. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, there's only one way right now to get uh, power out of the province through the Amera link. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know if there's an agreement in principle in place for that. I don't know if the capabilities are in that link to take the power. Unlikely. It's 500 megawatts. That's pretty full. Yeah, and, uh, you know, is, is there is there a market for it right now? I mean, uh, I, I would argue that we don't, uh, once Muskrat comes online fully and if they shut down Holyrood, then we still may have a little bit of a power shortage here if we're going to develop as many minerable, mineral uh, facilities as we say. I mean, we're talking about all the exploration going on with mining, and we all know how much power it's needed 
it to take to run a mine. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's a good move. I, d- I do think we need to go to wind energy and find a way to utilize, harness, and sell if we can. But uh, it's just the timing of how it is. And, and to be honest, my uh, my understanding a few years ago was that Biotic had most of the most of the rights for offshore wind. Um, I don't know if that's changed, if they've lost them, but it is something certainly. Uh, the last few days have been uh, taken up with Beta Norton budget, but it is something that we'll be looking into in the coming days. My worry as little guy tax uh, ratepayer is that, let's just say Valentine Lake, Marathon Gold, if they decide to put up a wind generation right on their site, they haul them out is a big consumer of electricity and to help pay for Muscrat Falls at a fixed cost. That just means more a heftier bill for me. That's the downside that I can see. It might be a great opportunity for, you know, if the markets can be satisfied, but I don't know how that works. I just don't. But as a rate payer, that would be the concern that I share. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of concerns, Patty. We look at Boise's Bay up there with three thermal generation plants, and, and uh, you know, all of their fuel is coming from Quebec. So, I mean, we got a lot more questions when it comes to power generation than we do answers right now. And at the end of the day, I mean, the reality is is that even even if we were to encourage businesses to uh, become self-sufficient with regards to energy, they have no way to put it back into the grids. I mean, government just simply doesn't allow it, and it's something that we ought to be considering. It's certainly, certainly if we've got a market for power. But it's government's responsibility to prove that we have a market for that power or to work with industry to make sure that there is no. Oh, or the private sector, if they come forward, they can do their own chase of the markets too, I suppose. Uh, Last question before I let you go. You don't have a permanent leader at this moment in time. Mr. Brazel is the interim leader of the PC party. We don't know how many people have shown any interest in running. Are you running? And when, when can we anticipate a new permanent leader? Uh, so uh, I have not considered running right now, Patty. Uh, I will say David Brazel is doing a fantastic job as our leader, and as long as he's interim leader, I'll support him fully. Uh, not hearing many rumors about who's going to run. I look forward to hearing those names, and certainly I'll reserve my decision for a later date. I appreciate you making time for the show. Thank you. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Louis Parrott, Shadow Minister for Industry, Energy, and Technology, the member for Terranova. Final break of the show. Do not go away. And welcome back to the program. Just a quick programming note. At 2 o'clock right here on VOCM, we will indeed be bringing you coverage of the provincial budget. Uh, Linda Swain, Alison King, and Richard Duggan are currently in the budget lock-in with other members of the media, getting the technical briefings from different ministers of different portfolios, and all of the information included inside the budget document, the budget speech, and where all the details lie is in the estimates. So for members of the media and for political watchers, there's a lot on tap today. We'll be hearing from, uh, of course, Minister Cody and then Minister Freeland later on. So there's going to be an overwhelming wave of information to digest and try to break it down into bite-sized morsels to help deliver to you at both at 2 o'clock and tomorrow morning on this show. Again, you know, with everything that the government touches, which is virtually everything in our lives, we will go down the road of environment and climate change issues and health care and education and all the, the notables that we look forward to in the budget. You know, the oil industry and the price per barrel that they set for the forecast for the next upcoming fiscal year, which, of course, ends on the 31st of March and proceeds through the next end of next March. But there has never been a greater focus on cost of living issues in recent memory. You, unless you are one of the whopping big muckety-mucks and the high earners, Things are just becoming completely out of control. I speak to people all the time here on this program and outside the show who who are on fixed incomes, and they're working, but they're not making a whole lot of money, and everything they touch is just becoming unrealistically expensive. 
So, and the most important one, I think, you know, whether it be we change our driving habits is one thing, but we can't change our habits with uh, heating up the house. So I wonder will there be any attention to some of those very keenly focused issues regarding cost of living. There's not much governments can do necessarily outside of adjustments of taxation and or home heat rebates or whatever the case may be. But unless there's some attention inside that portfolio of cost of living, which is wide as it is broad, then I think we're going to have uh, some issues to deal with tomorrow. Once again, even if government does away with the revenue stream regarding taxation, whether it be on gasoline or diesel or propane or home heating fuels, they're going to get it somewhere else. That would be the hidden worry that I think many people understand, is that whether it be an increase in a tax or a fee elsewhere or just increasing borrowing levels to accommodate any of these reductions in costs for us consumers, it's going to be just a matter of shuffling around the, the, the deck chairs, isn't it? So I wonder where we go from here, but if you'd like to pose a couple of certain or specific questions for me, because I'll get a chance to speak with some members of the public advocacy groups and business leaders and members of the official oppositions and union leaders and the like, I would imagine, who are all generally in attendance, and they're also in their own uh, respective budget lock-ins today to get the technical briefing so that they'll know how to react in the media, especially with our show at 2 o'clock. So if you want to propose some of those specific questions, I'll be happy to try to carry them out when I get over to the Confederation Building right after this program to prepare for the show, because I'll join the crew at 2 o'clock for our budget coverage. Uh, one story that I don't think is getting a whole lot of attention, which I think deserves some more, is because people have bemoaned the fact and they've completely mischaracterized the fact that the government bought and paid for media, which is just an exaggeration to the nth degree. It was always going to be a mistake given the buffoonery that we heard with the establishment of the phrase fake news. What government probably should have done before that is what they did this week when they tabled legislation in the House of Commons to force the big, massive digital giants to compensate news publishers for their content, specifically Facebook and Google. At this moment in time, those two entities alone have an 80% share of all online ad revenue in Canada, bringing in almost $10 billion. So for smaller publishers, news content generators, this is a really positive, pragmatic move, and it hits exactly where it's supposed to hit for those who can afford it in the big giants like Facebook and Google, as opposed to what was a really positive effort to try to save local media and the smaller groups. But, of course, that just further complicated the issue for many of those organizations because then all of a sudden they were considered to be bought and paid for, which if people really put any critical thought to it and weren't so bloody intellectually lazy, that would be a little bit better understood. So the whole issue of disinformation and whether or not I agree with news and if I don't, then all of a sudden it's fake or someone paid for it or whatever the case may be, we've got to get back to brass tacks about how journalism works and how government should be dealing with it, and including regulation. There's going to be a lot of concern still remaining, and I think rightfully so, about something called Bill C-11. It's about who becomes the arbiter of truth to control what happens online. There's a distinct difference between misinformation and disinformation. The purposeful disinformation campaigns have really hurt us, really, really have hurt us. We talk about the divisive nature of politics. The disinformation business is brutal. The CRTC and their chair, a fellow named Ian Scott, he says the CRTC can handle the implementation of this particular policy, all the while including the safeguards of freedom of expression. 
Tricky, to say the very least. But the CRTC goes on to say that they adjudicate some 250 broadcasting decisions annually. Not one single one has ever successfully been challenged on the basis that it somehow infringed on Canadians' freedom of expression. So the regulator has done an admirable job, an extremely difficult job, but I think we'll hear more conversations about the legislation compelling the digital giants to compensate for news content and for what's inside the covers of Bill C-11. People talk about it be the, the erosion of freedom of expression in the country, which is absolutely an important issue. Now, the Broadcast Act, which has to be amended, is 30 years old. So 30 years ago, the world and how we got our information, how we shared information, is nothing like it is today. Nothing. Technology has far outweighed the ability for legislators to keep up with the required pieces of legislation, protections and otherwise. So we'll follow those. And once again, we will be bringing you budget coverage right here on VOCM and Big Land FM at 2 p.m. All right, Dave, let's play us out with a little Sam Cooke. What do you say? All right, last check on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But we're going to call it a day here, but I'll be back at 2 o'clock with the coverage. So here's a bit more of the Sam Cooke twisting the night away, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk at 2, and then we'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.